0: Hi, my name is Greg Wilson. Welcome to Church Plant. This is the story of what planting a church is really like. If you're not familiar with the lingo, planting a church just means starting a new church. And over the next episodes, I'll be telling my story of what it's like planting a church in Manchester, England, with all the ups and downs. I've found there are lots of good resources out there about church planting, how to do it, the theology, and best practices. And there are lots of really good stories about church planting in interviews and books as people look back about what it was like. But I wanted to hear what it was like while planting, while in the process. What did it feel like? What were the first thoughts? Giving enough time, we can forget how we experienced difficult things, how we truly responded, and a myth can kind of begin to evolve as the distance from our experience grows. We want to demythologize what it's like to start a new church. Now there's a risk in this, of course. We are recording these in the process and we aren't guaranteed to succeed. So this could all very easily go down in flames, which might be entertaining for you either way. But whether we make it or not, at least there will be an honest take on what it's like. And I hope this story will inspire more people to get involved with new churches. Church planning has crazy ups and downs. It's hard, it's horrible, it's wonderful, it's glorious. And starting new churches continues to be God's number one way he uses to advance his kingdom it's worth the risk and over the next episodes we'll follow the story of one church the one i'm planting will go from my initial calling to learning what it means to plant a church to moving to another country and relearning what it means to plant a church gathering a team and everything in between leading up to our public launch one year from now, now in my experience church planting has rarely been predictable that can be really exciting and fun, but can also be challenging. And challenging would be a good way to describe my life recently. My family has been without a home for about a year. So what are we on our way to do?
1: Return our car and get a brand new one.
0: And how many times have we changed out rental cars? I don't know,
1: this is number eight or nine or something like that. I lost count. Yeah. Turn right onto Monticello Road.
0: Hey, Colin, do you like this car? You want to get a new one? Okay. (laughs) That was Christina, my wife, and Colin, our two-year-old son. We'll hear more from them later. Living with short-term rentals is one of the many surprises we've had to endure while being functionally homeless. Now, here's the backstory. We moved to Manchester, England to plant a church. After about 18 months of living there, we had to move back to the U.S. to get a new work visa. We thought the visa process would take nine weeks, so we only planned for nine weeks. That means only planning for nine weeks of staying in other people's homes, nine weeks worth of clothes, nine weeks worth of luggage, and that has turned into much longer. It's been a year now. And we still have all of our stuff in England, a house we're paying rent on, our car, our clothes, our son's toys, and all that stuff. So we have a home, we just can't live in it. And we've been working at getting a visa since we've been back, and well, it's just been a surprisingly slow process. But I'm getting ahead of myself. How did I even get here to begin with? What made me move to a new country with my wife and then four-month-old son trying to plant a church and a new culture and one that isn't overtly friendly to Christians to begin with? It all starts with a call. And the single most important aspect to my specific calling to church planting was suffering. and suffering in the form of a trial. And I don't just mean trial in a metaphorical sense, my literal federal trial where I was wrongly accused of a felony by my own father, where I was looking at up to four years in prison if found guilty. The United States of America versus Gregory Wilson. This was the document staring me in the face as I sat behind a table, legs and arms shackled. I just came out of a prison cell, one I'd been in all day. And what I found out was my father was involved in creating fraudulent mortgages that he got a lot of money from. I mean, do you remember the housing crash that helped start the Great Recession? There wasn't a lot of oversight with mortgage brokers and my father, a mortgage broker, took advantage of that by inflating the prices of houses that he would buy and on the mortgage application, he'd use fake buyers with fake jobs that made a lot of fake money. The loan would then be approved and my dad would pocket the extra real money. And there was a lot of extra money. He used me in the scheme this way. He said, look, I have a family whose house would be foreclosed on, but here's the deal, you buy it, and they pay the rent that would cover the mortgage. They get to stay in their house, and when their credit is better, they can buy it back from you. So you get some money, they get to keep their house. It's a win-win. Oh, and don't worry about taking care of it. I'll act as the property manager. I'll handle the rent, and with that, I'll pay the mortgage. I'll take care of it all. And that sounded good to me. I actually thought he was using this as an opportunity to make up for lost time because we were never really close. But it was the exact opposite. This was an opportunity for him to use me. I mean, though we were never close, he had never done anything illegal like this before. I didn't know I had anything to suspect. So I said yes. He made around $50,000 after he used my information to forge a fraudulent mortgage application. Also, instead of paying the mortgage with the rent that he collected, he kept it for himself. And to top it all off, he took two credit cards out by my name. All in all, he made about $75,000 off of me in about a 10-month span. My dad went missing around this time, but the FBI eventually caught up with him because they were chasing him by now. He pled guilty to fraud, and when they told him they'll be more lenient on him if he takes more people down with him, he said that I was guilty and I was in on the mortgage fraud with him just to save a bit of his own skin. And this is why I was sitting shackled behind a desk in a courtroom reading a document titled United States of America versus Gregory Wilson. I was talking to Christina about this, remembering what it was like living through this time. Can you think of any specific memories that stand out during that time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember when we got the phone call that said you were going to be arrested. I remember when you had to turn yourself in and having... um, Even though I don't think I looked very long, seeing them put... um, these two big men put shackles on your ankles or on your wrist, I think, at that point. Yeah, just that that slap in the face. I mean, that would happen multiple times a day. I'd be at work just going about my business and feeling like things were good. And I was just doing things. And then all of a sudden, it'd be like, smack. Like, no, this is horrible. Life's horrible right now. My husband could go to prison um, for something that he did not do.
0: Thinking back now, years later, I can remember times of... Just- Deep depression, sitting on the couch, staring at the wall, not having enough energy to even get up and go to bed and take a nap. I remember my blood pressure perking up when I saw a cop car or a police officer nearby, and because before this I thought the authorities were on my side. Now I had my doubts. And even though I knew I was innocent, would twelve random people believe that as well? I mean, with all the power of the state set against me. I mean, if not. What does it mean to be a pastor with a criminal record, especially one related to fraud? Then there were all the kind of particulars that you just have to think about. Like, who's going to mow the lawn while I'm in prison? And then wait, how will we even pay our rent while I'm in prison? And I was stupid enough to Google what living in prison could be like. I mean, all of this, I felt like it was a, a, a big black blanket that was just draped over us and I was only just barely able to see out of it. It colored everything and I always felt its weight. It was horrible. Everybody has a box where you put your important papers, um, dental kind of stuff, vision stuff, um, medical information, retirement information, product manuals, car stuff, all that kind of thing. Um, What I have that might be different than from others is included in all those normal family kind of things is a large file that is made up of the government's case against me and the proof as to um, where I've been found innocent. Let's take a look at some of these things. So here's some of a transcript from the FBI. Wilson, that's me, stated he had a very poor relationship with his father. He recalled that sometime during the summer of 2006, he was contacted as his interest in participating in a real estate scheme. Wilson stated his father knew that he was in need of financial assistance because he was a full-time student attending seminary in the Oviedo, Florida area. Ah, here's the original loan documents that were changed after we signed them this is what it should have been uh here it is united states of america versus gregory w wilson 14 other people my name at the bottom gregory michael wilson the grand jury charges count one conspiracy Point number 16, Gregory Michael Wilson. This is the claim of the prosecution. Participated in the scheme by agreeing with co-conspirators to be the buyer of record for the residential property located at 336, et cetera, et cetera. Signing false and fraudulent documents, knowing that the false and fraudulent documents would be submitted to mortgage lenders to obtain loans to purchase said property. And here is Judgment of acquittal, an official court document, United States of America versus Gregory Michael Wilson. This case came on for trial commencing February 2012. For the reasons stated on the record, it is hereby ordered, in accordance with the Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 29A, Gregory Michael Wilson's or tennis motion for judgment of acquittal is granted. Defendant Gregory Michael Wilson is not guilty of the offense charged in the indictment. The defendant is discharged from any further requirements of the court and allowed to go hence without day for his return. And that's it. This seemingly insignificant piece of paper is what hit. proves that I am not guilty of the crimes I was accused of. Now, Reading legal documents isn't of particular interest to me normally, but these are obviously important parts of my life. So continuing the story, I was charged with a crime, turned myself in, was processed in jail for a day, saw a judge, an initial arraignment with a judge, and basically we were waiting for a trial to start. Uh, It took a long time. After a grueling two years of fits and starts, I found myself in an intimidating federal courthouse. I don't know if you've been in a federal courthouse before, but the architecture is meant to show off the power of the state. The tall ceilings, the marble arches, all these weighed heavily on me, and I felt the powerlessness that comes from being under something like the United States of America. The first witness the prosecution calls, their star witness, my father. He spent almost all of two long days outlining my guilt, how I knew everything, and how I was in on it with him. The lies and betrayal were almost too much to bear. But during the last 15 minutes of his testimony, my amazing lawyer, appointed by the court and a gift from God, finally got the truth out of him. He eventually told the truth, saying, I wasn't involved in any of this fraud. My dad finally said, "Craig didn't know. He was in the dark. This effectively reversed the whole story he had been giving over the past two years, the story that put us on this horrible path. And after his testimony, Witness after witness came up, and they said the same thing. Either they didn't know who I was, or they wondered why I was here. After a week of this, the judge threw the case out and issued what's called a judgment of acquittal. It's as if I've never been charged at all. I was finally free. And that was only the second time that judge in his 25 years issued this. I'll never forget the judge's words to me in that courtroom as he threw out my case. Looking at me firmly in the eyes, he said, Son, you are free to go. While we were in it, and this was about a two-year process from start to finish, we were backed into a corner. We didn't have any power to affect the situation. We were completely dependent on others, and not every one of these others were working for our good. Surprise, surprise, the justice system isn't always about justice. But there always was one who worked for our good despite our circumstances. And he is also the only one who truly has the power to change all of our circumstances. God himself was our comfort, though it didn't always feel comfortable. And often the way he revealed his comfort was through his people. The lawyer that was randomly appointed to us by the court, he was amazing. When there were people praying for us when we just couldn't pray, our small group was amazing and came around us. We had some close friends and the elders in our church who were incredibly supportive. We had one friend in particular who lived near where the trial was held, and he took his lunch breaks to sit in the courtroom with me and just pray by himself, because Christina couldn't be in there because she was a witness. Suffering has a way of squeezing out what's truly inside, and we were squeezed. What came out wasn't always good. I was still working for a church, leading music each week, and I remember my prayer before many services would often be, God, help me to believe what comes off my lips. Help me not to lie when I sing to you. All of this was him backing us into a corner, and we didn't have any recourse but to put our trust in him. And he came through on so many levels. But here's the deeper truth. I am not guilty of mortgage fraud, but I am guilty of so much more. And in the trial where I deserve to be found guilty, where we all deserve to be found guilty before God, Jesus himself is our advocate. We have the best court-appointed lawyer the world has ever seen. He pleads our innocence because the penalty for our crimes have already been paid by Jesus himself. If I felt like I suffered, and I did in this trial, what was it like for Jesus to suffer infinitely more horribly? And he did that because of the joy set before him, and that joy was a people he was creating for himself. That's how much his people matter to him. He doesn't betray even though we've betrayed him, and he's faithful. Whether we feel it or not, we are all backed into a corner with our own sin. Are we going to squirm? Try and helplessly claw our way out? Or are we going to throw ourselves on Jesus? It's really our only choice. In our corner, he doesn't approach us with a club or a backhand, he approaches us with an embrace. And we learned about this firsthand in very real and practical ways. It's easy to say, yes, God will trust you when things go wrong, but we can't truly know until things seriously go wrong. I mean, there was and continues to be fallout from the trial. The suffering continues. But God also worked through this time and has been gracious to us. Christina and I were discussing this the other day.
1: So broken relationships, there's a lack of trust um, with certain family members. That's been hard. Not with us, but with your family. Not, not that they were fabulous to begin with, because mm-hmm. they weren't. They were, they were hanging by threads. But um, yeah, I mean, we haven't spoken or heard anything from your dad or tried to contact him. Um, I didn't, I've always thought I was somebody who was able to like, I was pretty self-aware and able to like deal with things head on. Um, But yeah, I don't, I don't like having intense emotions that are negative. And um, so yeah, just learning how to push things aside and not think about them. I mean, in some way that was survival because you can't have all of the emotions at all the time. Um, so there was some of that was survival, but with that, I think I've learned some negative, some, some bad habits of, um, compartmentalizing and not just not feeling in general. Like, I mean, I don't watch movies very much anymore because, you know, those emotions that sometimes if they're sad, like, that's just, I don't want to feel it. And, um, that's something that's been a struggle that I've been thinking a lot about. Like, I need to make myself watch movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'll feel, yeah,
0: it's kind of, a, it was like a way to. To survive and that was like a learned behavior you mm-hmm. can get to if you need to, if you want to.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, did the suffering itself while we were in it produce anything good within us?
1: Perspective on problems. Like I remember it was only like a month or so after everything was over and done with and um, the case had been thrown out. Um I got into a little bit of a, I said something about a coworker that I should not have said in hindsight, and I kind of knew it in the moment, and that another coworker told the coworker I was talking about um, what I'd said, and she confronted me about it the next day, and normally that would have just, like, destroyed me inside. That would have had me full of anxiety and fear, and um, yeah, just this, like, this dread of, oh, no, this person is mad at me. I've hurt them. And now all their friends are going to be mad at me too. And, um, and this feeling of like, well, I need to defend myself. Um, but when she confronted me, my first response was not defense. It was, I'm sorry, you're right. I shouldn't have said that. And I remember in the morning driving to school that day and knowing something was going to happen, like knowing I was, this was probably, I was going to get confronted about this. And I remember thinking, well, I think I even called you and told you about this. I remember thinking, well, um, we've been to the tri- through the trial we've been through all of that. And like, God, God took care of us. And this, this is nothing compared to that. I can handle this coworker, um, confronting me and being angry at me because I said something hurtful, um, relying on other learning how to rely on other people a little bit, um, I really couldn't pray. I just had a really hard time. I don't know if it was anger, if it was just a way to keep the emotions at bay, but I just had a really difficult time. And I don't think for a lot of that time that the trial was going on, I could um, I could pray. And so just being able to text a friend in the middle of the night at two in the morning and say like, I really need you to pray for me because I can't sleep. And um, I just can't, I can't do it. I can't talk to God. I don't know how to. Um So in that way, like relying on somebody else um, for support and help and admitting that.
0: We will mess up. We won't always measure up. But we can continue to come back to God, and He continues to sustain us. During this time, our faith in Jesus wasn't amazing. It was meager. But it wasn't the amount of faith that mattered so much as the object of our faith. God was bigger, more loving, more capable, more involved in us and our story than anyone and anything else he saw us through. And after being brought through the trial, we slowly began to ask ourselves, what next? God had just proved to us how faithful he is when times are tough, and we understood more what suffering's range can be like, what low really feels like. So our question to ourselves was this. When we were backed into a corner, we were desperately dependent on God. Now, what would it look like to live a life just as desperate, just as dependent, when we don't feel like it's desperate out there? If God backed us into a corner for the trial, we feel like now He took a step
1: back and said to us, "Okay, well, what are you going to do now?" I was like, "Well, we got this." Like, okay, so that was really hard. That was probably one of the hardest things we'll ever experience in our lives—moving um, to another country and trying to plant a church. Um, that's like if He if He took care of, like took care of us and provided for us in that way, then. Um, through something so horrible and hard and scary and um, all of these other synonyms I could give, but um, if he if he could do that for that, then like of course he can give us the strength and, and get it and carry us through um, something that will be also very challenging.
0: And enduring this was hard enough for us, we who could lean on God, who had a community of people praying, encouraging, offering us comfort, what about all those people in hard circumstances that don't have that, that are out there blinded in the dark?
1: If we didn't have those people, um, I think it it would have been even more difficult than it was and it was really, really difficult. And so I think that, not that, I don't believe that people can't have close relationships, but there's something different when um, Jesus is the one binding you together. And so these are people who... Jesus had bound into our lives and, um, because of him, because of our connections with him and our relationship with him that, um, and and so I, I, it would be really, really hard. I can't imagine if I didn't have those people. Um, I don't, I don't know how we would have gotten through it. I don't know how I wouldn't have been, uh, Very, very, very tightly round ball of stress for an entire two years instead of like being able to have times where I was able to kind of chill out and rely on other people. Um, I just can't imagine it. So, people need that community. Um, we have that community, and we need to show people like what it is, what it's like to be a part of something, what it's like to be a part of a family that is going to take care of you no matter what.
0: And even though the idea of church planting scared us, God had just proved himself to be faithful through a far more scarier time. He has and always will protect and provide for us. That truth is amazingly freeing. Jesus suffered immeasurably more than we could imagine. His people matter to him, and there are more that need to know. But this calling, like every calling, has a cost. God hasn't promised an easy life that we often act like it. I mean, why are we surprised and through adult-style tantrums when things don't go our way? God hasn't promised an easy life, but He did promise that He won't leave us. He won't forget about us. He will work for our good, even, especially even, when we don't feel like it. He hears us, sees us, knows us, even when we feel like He's silent. So we are free to go? Even more than any earthly judge can offer up, but that doesn't mean easy to go. I mean, when you think about it, every calling has a cost. At the least, the cost of saying yes to one thing means saying no to other things. And as it comes in our broken world, anything that's worth doing is often hard. There's all sorts of resistance. But just because resistance exists doesn't mean the thing isn't worth doing. On paper, planting a church can often look ridiculous, but that doesn't mean it's not a thing worth doing. The people of God have always had a certain kind of restlessness embedded within them. I think there are bad versions of this, like restless to get more money or power, the basic hedonism that our consumerist culture is all too eager to serve up, but there is another kind, a holy restlessness, called to this world and something more, not either or. Abraham was one of the prototypes of this, called from his home to a place that, well, he didn't really know, but one thing he did know that God called him. He didn't require God to give him a 10 year plan, as far as we know, he went, he had a calling. And Hebrews picks this theme up and tells us, Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham was looking past the realities, the circumstances and the resistance found in this world, past those things to God himself. We find rest in our restless callings by ultimately finding them in God. If my calling is to plant a church full stop nothing more that means i live and die by this church plant i will contort it and rearrange it to become a very holy looking idol and those are the best kind to get away with by the way but if i'm looking to god and him first my first calling is to be his disciple that means when he calls i obey but my life doesn't depend on the task my life is hid with god god takes care of me not the church plant god gives me my identity not the church plant God gives me the security, the meaning, the endurance, the everything. And ironically enough, it's only when the church plant isn't the best thing in your life that you can really give your church what it needs, mature leadership rooted in Jesus. And this brings us back to where I am today, restless. Right now, we we're just about to finish our visa application to go back to the UK. And we've got a long way to get to this point. We are ready to get back to Manchester, back to our home, back to our calling, back to where we believe God has called us to plant a church. But from that first inkling of a call to plant a church, we realized one very important thing. We had no idea what we were doing. So we thought we should probably learn about how to do it. And that's on our next episode when we move to the deep south of Columbia, South Carolina, to get hands-on experience in church planting. Thanks for listening to this first episode of Church Plant. Please give us a rating on iTunes. This lets more people find us and hear these stories. Our website is churchplantpodcast.com. Sign up there to get new episodes delivered to your inbox. Thanks to Joanna Carcellis for her original score. Go to JoannaKarcellis, J-O-A-N-N-A-K-A-R-S-E-L-I-S dot com to find more of her music. Church Plant is partnered with Union, Union has a massive set of free resources on their website and app, ranging from podcasts, articles on Christian living and church history, all the way through more academic papers on topics like the Trinity or inspiration. Union has been really actually helpful for me in getting high quality and accessible theological resources into the hands of people in our church plant. So check it out for yourself at uniontheology.org or their app by searching Union Theology. Church Plant is partnered with Acts 29 Great Britain. No church planter should go about this hard work alone. They need to be properly assessed so they know their strengths and weaknesses. They need a fellowship of like-minded people around them, people who have been where they are and survived. And they need ongoing training. You know, I cannot overstate how helpful Acts 29 Great Britain has been for me. Go to Acts29.com to learn more. Church Plant is written and produced by me, Greg Wilson.